0: Welcome to Group Text. The people I have on today, first of all, I'm fans of both in different realms of their lives. And they have now come together to create a fascinating podcast. Welcome Liz Lang and Ariel Levy from the podcast, The Just Enough Family. So before we get into the podcast, let's just break down how some of us know each other on here Liz Lang was the first, you like, super stylish maternity wear designer. And you and I met, and this is terrifying, my son is now 20.
1: Same. We must have both been pregnant at the same time. And we did a story for E
0: on your maternity line at your Beverly Hills store. And that is where you and I met and you were very generous and gave me a ton of clothes. And I then basically wore all Liz Lang all the way through my pregnancy and ready for this, I still managed to wear your turtlenecks up until about 10 years ago. And, but also it became part of like, that was the big thing. You passed down your maternity clothes, but your stuff was so beautiful. It was Gwyneth Paltrow, it was. I mean, who am I missing? You, you dressed everybody.
1: I was everybody. It was like Gwyneth and Kate Blanchett. I was always dressing Kelly Rippa, You, of course, um, uh, Julianne Moore, um, uh, Catherine Zeta Jones. Catherine Zeta Jones. I mean, it was so. It was almost crazy. I. I Really was very lucky. And I just basically every celebrity who got pregnant, Cindy, all the models back then, like Cindy Crawford and Paulina Perskova, I mean, we're really dating ourselves, but yes. they were models. Um, you know? Uh, yes. Uh, Heidi Klum. Everybody. Everybody. Julia you, Roberts, yeah. you, you
0: were one of the first ones to make maternity clothes. That did not look like maternity clothes. That was the concept. Yeah. And it, by the way, and it was a very successful concept. I still justt remember I had a sort of really pretty, blight, almost light blue cashmere turtleneck that I lived in because I had a December baby, so right. and I had my my favorite gray pants, which which and what I loved, and no one cares was you had the choice of being over the bump or under the bump
1: that's you remember it so
0: well, oh my God, because I do because <laughs> I remember at the time you were the first one doing that, and Ariel levy you are an award-winning journalist you have written for the new yorker you have written for everyone you've had multiple books i mean I, i'm a
2: professional writer Which... i write art. I write, I write for a living
0: it's true <laughs> oh my god and you are not completely crazy
2: I wouldn't say that, Melissa, (laughs) I wouldn't jump to conclusions. But this was my first podcast. This was the first time I did something uh, with my speaking voice and not my written voice. And it was really fun. I I
0: like how you chose your words very carefully (laughs) (laughs) on that one. That's literally my job. Yeah. Choosing your words carefully. So I want to jump right into this, because the podcast, The Just Enough Family, right. after all these years, Liz Lang, I did not know that you were a Steinberg.
1: Right. So you probably went to, to Penn with my sister, Jane. and I my did. And Laura. Right? Yes.
0: yes. And I did not know. How did you guys meet? Through
2: Jonathan Adler. Oh, oh. the designer.
1: Yes, Jonathan and I met freshman year at Brown. I was the Steinberg that didn't go to Penn. so Brown. <laughs> There were not many of them. No, you. I was the lone one. And so Jonathan and I have been best friends. And I'm, obviously I'll let Ari speak for herself, but they were very close friends. So Ari and I were always hearing about each other through Jonathan. And then I guess about 10, maybe 15, and we were dating ourselves now too, probably around a decade ago, he introduced us. We became very uh, close friends as well, both as a group and also just Ari and I. And
0: okay. on, a, on a side note, my desk that I'm sitting at right now is Jonathan Adler. Had I known, I would have asked for a discount. And <laughs> he's in the
2: podcast. He's in the podcast with ours, yeah.
0: Well, I only found out about this podcast a week ago. Oh. And I'm like, I have to talk to them. I have to talk to them. Um, for those who don't know, one of you needs to explain to the listeners who the Steinbergs are and what their power was in New York in the 80s.
1: Um, should I say it, already? Should you say, probably, I mean, Probably. Yeah, I you this should. is my family, and then you could jump out. I'll just say quickly that the thing that's interesting, uh, Melissa, is that actually everyone associates it with the 80s, but it really started in the late 60s. I was born in 66, and by 1968, my uncle Saul Steinberg, which was, again, unusual back then, was the person in the United States under 30 was I'm trying to say who had made the most amount of money of anybody under the age of 30 in the United States. And he was at that point also only about 25 years old. My parents were similarly aged and was, uh, you know, one of the richest people in America. And again, he was 27, 28 uh, Jewish, which, you know, the three of us know as Jews. Today everything is very assimilated and everything seems like this couldn't be true. But back in the 60s and 70s, unless you were a very fancy German Jew, um, this was not typical. The people with all the money were typically wasps. Yes, so especially coming people- out of
0: Wall Street. And that was the the where the family made their money. I mean, we all really I mean, for me anyway. We all sort of, especially coming from Penn and Wharton and all that, we all knew Steinberg, Dietrich Hall, but your uncle was really one of the f- first famous corporate raiders.
2: He, before he was a corporate raider, he he took his father's rubber business, which is just like, you know, a rubber business. They made rubber dolls ac- terribly, according to Liz's father. He makes a big point of how bad these are dolls. <laughs> and he takes this and then he starts an office equipment, this is before computers, an office equipment leasing business called LeaseGo. And it's huge. It's hard to imagine that that's such a huge thing, but it is. And he then based the on, yeah. go ahead, Liz.
1: Sorry, I was just saying, like, for instance, he took that public in the 60s way prior to even the concept of corporate rating. He wasn't a corporate rater mm-hmm. at all. He he was, he was had identified, like any entrepreneur, sort of a hole in the market, did yeah. something with it, took it public, became an overnight sensation of a business person because right. he was so young and it was so new and so rich um uh made the entire family extraordinarily rich with him uh then uh in the 70s and then in the late 60s tried to take over what was then chemical bank that would be the equivalent of taking over jp morgan chase right. today uh, that didn't happen frankly because of anti-semitism like the world kind of shut down around him and some
2: bad stuff happened the law was literally passed specifically to change the way companies in New York could be could be bank, the way to limit non-financial corporations from acquiring banks. And wow. it, was, it was a law that was pretty blatantly directed at, at the Jews. At Carl Steinberg.
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, oh, definitely. Anyway, he went on to be a you know superstar investor in mm-hmm. the 80s, absolutely known as a corporate raider. But as we talk about in the podcast kind of hilariously, kind of by accident. He was like trying to invest in companies. Then he noticed that they became really afraid when he would invest and start saying, Hey, hey, can we just sell you back the stock at a big price and say goodbye? And so he was like Wait, oh okay. This That's is kind of so, fun. Right. Kind of went from there. And it was also my you know, he was very social. He was always again, these things meant much more back then, but you know, page six people magazine, there wasn't a lot of difference between him and let's say a celebrity like your mom in terms of like what it meant to be that person's relative. Like if that makes sense to you. Totally, like, totally. What like it, what made me that what, was a celebrity? Yeah. What
0: made you guys want to do this podcast? I mean, I'm fascinated about that time in new york i mean there's been so many movies we're talking about what wall street wolf of wall street bonfire of the vanities which when it came out when tom Wolfe's book came out everybody was shaking trying to figure out who was whom and then the movie that was made i mean you can go on and on and on you know there was such a fascination with that time and i was very much on sort of the outside part of it because my mother did not move back to new york until we were thinking about it the other day, 89, 90. Um, And when she sort of got to know all these people, what was the fascination, you're talking about New York Post, people that everybody had on that, has with that time in the late 80s in New York and Wall Street?
2: I do think in the case of Liz's family, it was representative of something that was going on. Liz was, you know hinted at this a minute ago, that basically it was not German Jews. It was Jews from the wave of Russian and Polish immigrants. And they, they basically, Saul basically with the brute force of his intelligence and then the money that he made penetrated the highest echelon of WASP society, Park Avenue, Palm Beach, you name it. Like he, Got in there, and I think it was a big deal. It was like that was not common at the time. And I think what cemented society's fascination with him was his th- was when he married his third wife, Gay Fred Steinberg, and the two of them were like an it couple. She was unbelievably famous. She was in every tablet. She was mm-hmm. everyone was obsessed with what she was wearing. I mean, Tina Brown put her in Vanity Fair with this fawning article. I think
0: people were obsessed. Obsessed. Yeah, like, exactly. I mean, but So, Liz, growing up in this sort of very rarefied New York strata of society, which I think is what people are so fascinated by um, in all these other movies, there had to, and then seeing your family all over the tabloids, did you ever feel like, wait a minute, I want someone to stand up and tell the truth? Mm-hmm. Or did it just become white noise to you? Because that's something I know, it all became white noise.
1: Totally. I never really, I mean, I guess when Ari approached me, I mean, I'm trying to think how to answer this. Yes. I, it absolutely all became white noise. That was the life I was born into. That's all I knew. I mean, I knew it wasn't a hundred percent normal, of course, but I have in recent years and maybe even then too, at times been very frustrated because I feel like like, I feel like, for instance, in the case of my uncle, and this, 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 this podcast is, is absolutely my story and it's pretty intimate, but it also definitely is a bit of a love letter to my uncle, I think. And part of that is because I feel like what you read in the tabloids would be, let's say, for example, Saul Steinberg gives huge over-the-top party at Temple of Dendor for his daughter's 21st birthday. Okay, that is true. What they never say is, Saul Steinberg gave so much money to the museum, you know, to the Metropolitan Museum, for the benefit of all the the people who live and visit New York and get to go to that museum, desperately wanting to be on the board, no doubt, desperately, never accepted by that board. And because he funded that museum, yes, he, like many other donors, when the museum was closed on Mondays, were allowed to use it and can use it for private functions. And by the way, yeah. It's so frustrating. It's like...
0: I, I get that where it's like, oh, you get it. But no one talks about that behind the scenes. What was it like growing up in New York in that time? Because New York in that late 80s, early 90s, which is really that sort of heady time, was off the charts. Crazy. I mean, we, we, we know all know about these parties that were insane where at midnight you know, butterflies would drop from below. It was, and I, you know, I think fashion, I'm like, it was all uh, Christian Lacroix and big over the poof dress and the jewels and the heavy Chanel big jewelry. I mean, it was such an iconic time in so many ways. What was it? Cause I grew up in LA. Right. So what was it like in the midst of all that?
1: Well, I mean, New York was fun, but I will say this: and I, I, I grew up. I'm, I'm, I was born in 1966, so I'm a little bit older than you, but I, I don't think like crazy old. No, life. no, 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 not crazy old. I really grew up by 1988. I had graduated from college, just just to be clear. So my childhood in New York City was really the 70s and the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. uh, by 1991, I was working at Vogue magazine as you know a 22 year old out of college, mm-hmm. um, and I started my business and. I mean, lang maternity in 97. So right. But it was still that late. Yeah. I, so it was that, in that
0: later childhood. You're still not necessarily like you might be in
1: college, but you're still living at home. Yeah. I mean, again, like it's hard to say. Cause I, maybe I like, I was, I was so in the middle of that eighties, uh, you know, excess thing that in fact, I know Ari mentioned Vanity Fair, but when I remember when Vanity Fair, po- uh, Vanity Fair used to be such an important magazine. It was so important. It was everything. It's and when true. Vanity Fair did its final, uh, uh, final. Let's run. Not episode. What's the word? Uh, uh, issue. Issue. At the end of the eighties, it might have been you know at some point in nineteen eighty nine. I guess December. That the the headline said goodbye to all that, and the big picture was my aunt and uncle dancing with you know with with streamers coming down from the ceiling. You know, it was a great shot of the two of them just living it up. Mm-hmm. But that was the idea that they kind of you know embodied but that. Like I'm sorry. I was just saying that they epitomized the eighties,
2: That yes. yes. Mm-hmm.
1: And I knew that, but the podcast you'll hear is really about what it was like to grow up. Like, yes, I was next to that. My uncle and my father were business partners, best friends. Our families were enmeshed, but I had a very sort of, um, I had a more traditional, uh, family. Like I did not have those parties personally. My parents didn't throw those parties. Not, I'm not, there's no judgment about them. It's just, so it was more about, well, I was always at them. They, this was my, you know my very close cousins and uncle and aunts, but but it wasn't really 100% my life. It was more the idea, which again, I'm sure you can relate to, that I kind of knew. People are probably now finding out, oh, she knew. I knew that everywhere I went before I got there, people were whispering, do you know how rich Liz is? Or do you know that Liz's father is da-da-da, Liz's uncle? I, I totally knew that that was my tagline. I didn't acknowledge it, but I was completely aware that there, that there was just a lot of different, opinions and feelings about me about my parents about preconceived
0: my preconceived notions
1: beyond so if i was shy and i'm not saying oh poor me it's not poor me at all i had a no great life but I, there, again i i can relate to you because i've read stuff about your story right. i think you've written part of it so i i know this like, right there was a lot going on that maybe wasn't so great like you know what i mean like there was, yeah. it was it was it was a mixed bag i was living a life like anybody else but i understood that if i went to a party and i was shy that it would be like Oh, little Miss Snooty Pants, or oh, right? That you any- were, you oh. couldn't
0: just be shy, or you can't be in a bad mood, or you're just a bitch and a terrible person.
1: It, exactly. So I understood all that. I mean, the parties, all of that. That wasn't. I was. I was not a hundred. That wasn't. You know, I was young. I wasn't. I wasn't really like my exact life. But yes, I was in the absolute epicenter of it. All my parents' friends were bold-faced uh, business names. I didn't know that that was unusual. I didn't know it was weird to be having Thanksgiving with Ronald Perlman and Carl Icahn. These were just family. I right. called Ronald Perlman Uncle Ronnie. That didn't feel strange to me.
0: Right. And I, I completely understand that because that becomes the norm to you. Ariel, what, what made you want to take a deep dive on this? I mean, I find it Fascinating.
2: Well, two things. First of all, I mean, Liz and I always talked about telling her story at some point, because it's just a fabulous story of of a rise and fall um, of a family. But also, I think what I like, the reason it's called the Just Enough family is when Liz was a kid, she wanted to be a writer and she would tell little stories and she made up this story called the just enough family. And it was this, stop me if I'm getting this wrong, Liz. I think I have it memorized. They, they weren't hurting. They could always get the next meal, but they had just enough. And I think it was like this fantasy that, that Liz had as a kid of like a slightly simpler life. So as much as, you know, when you were saying you had no judgment on those parties, that's a lie. You, you thought those parties were fabulous. Your judgment was, I live in the house of, no, why do my cousins live in the house of, yes, your judgment was, why did I get so unlucky that my parents are like normal and putting like restrictions on what we can have? So anyway, I think that on the one hand, you know, I think Liz was dazzled by the wealth around her and and particularly by things at Saul's house where it was just over the top but also she was aware of people hating them for this wealth and having preconceived notions, and that there was all this tension in the family around it all. So this fantasy, this kid's fantasy of having this simple, just enough family, I just thought that was a great way into the story. We both did. We both thought that that idea and telling it through like child's eye view was just a way of getting an intimacy to the whole thing that keeps it from just being flashed.
0: What was the biggest difference between the two families?
1: Oh, there were so many. I mean, um, my house was a very, my mother was very strict. So we had a ton of rules. Like we didn't eat between meals. We ate what was served for dinner. Much more strict mm-hmm. even than I am with my children. I mean, we I dressed the way in the clothes that my mother bought for me. You know, I'm not saying none of this was hardship, but it was just like I was raised the
0: same way. We sat down for dinner. This, that, blah, 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 yeah, blah, 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 blah. Didn't like
1: your dinner? First of all, you ate it whether you liked it or not. And if you didn't like it, it wasn't like there was some Postmates or some chef making me something else. I mean, yes, we ha- you know there there were people around who worked for us, but they didn't. My mother would have said, you know, they don't work for you. Like right. if I. If I left my room messy one day, came up from school, I would find the door closed and the room still messy. And if I was like, oh, mom, you know, how come the housekeeper didn't make my bed today? She'd be like, oh, it was too messy for me to let your housekeeper, the housekeeper go in there. Right. That would just be outrageous. So,
0: so. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm so trained that I straighten up hotel rooms. Right. Before the housekeeping comes in. Cause I don't want them to think I'm messy.
1: Right. I mean, j- we joke on the podcast, but I don't mean it. I adore my mother and she was a great mother, but my sister and I have a joke that when we saw the movie, mommy dearest, we were like. Yeah, I mean, who's allowed to have wire hangers. I mean, you're not allowed to have wire hangers. Like, that's (laughs) animals. Um, Right, animals. Yeah, of course not. But then at my uncle's house, it was kind of a free-for-all. Like, I mean, again, uh, you know, you go over there, and there were a lot of people working there who would make, if you, like at my cousin's, you would just call downstairs, and you'd say what you wanted for breakfast or lunch. Maybe it'd be pizza, maybe bagels, whatever. And it would just come up for you. And I thought this this was living. Like, I didn't feel like there were any rules at all. And my cousins would say the same. And they always say, oh, well, they were envious of my house because they wanted the structure and the rules. So it just felt to me, though, going there, which I went often after school, we actually lived across the street from each other. It just felt going there was like going to like Kitty Paradise. Like, Oh, yeah. And they, lived, they moved everywhere together. That's the other thing. They were
2: like this sort of like wealthy shtetl of people on Long <laughs> Island. And then the whole thing picked up and moved to Park Avenue. Like, it, was, is, like, sh- it was like a tribe.
0: Yeah, which is also shocking to all the uh park avenue society doyens to have these crazy jews move in
1: back then most buildings and i remember this distinctly like my parents might be talking they'd say oh we'd love to buy such and such apartment and i might say i can't remember say like oh why not they'd be like oh we could never move to that building that would never happen and i'm like really oh yeah you wouldn't get past the board never Ever and that was the way it was for most buildings on park and fifth um and then even when we moved my parents early uh built a house on lily pond lane in east hampton and th- our neighbors on either side moved they moved because it was wow. their neighborhood
0: and wow
1: yes and i mean these are nice people i'm just saying like you know like it was <laughs> it was it we were very i didn't i didn't fully I said this on the podcast, like there was part of us, like we didn't fully care. We were, I think a lot of Jews, it's a very Jewish story, this podcast. I think a lot of us felt a little bit like both inferior and superior at the same time. Like if I were to say any of this to my parents back then, they'd say, yeah, they're all just jealous of us. Just jealous. Yeah. They just don't know what to do because none of them have worked in so many generations that, you know, they, you know, it was, it was, it was a little bit, but, but yet on the other hand, we knew that we weren't really, really welcome in.
0: You were allowed to look through the window, but not into the party. Definitely. So the rise we all sort of know about and, and the, the opulence and your aunt being a big member of society and jet set. And there was a whole, a whole tribe of them. Um, when things crashed, they crashed fast and hard. Yes. What is your first memory of that things were not going well?
1: Well, it all happened for me, it felt very overnight, um, because I was I was already I was 32 years old, I was married, I was living in a large apartment with my husband, my two children, honestly, like three people and help that my father had bought, you know, had bought for us as a way that again, just seemed absolutely normal. And I in fact, I like this apartment a lot at the time. But I think I recall that I was thinking of it, that I would probably be moving into something even bigger. You thought of it as your starter. Starter apartment, which sounds disgusting now, but that is what was, if I'm being honest, that was what was in my head. Right. I started to notice, I used to send a lot of my bills to my father's office and his then secretary would pay them. And I started to notice that some bills weren't getting paid. I was getting like phone calls from different service providers. So I called my dad's secretary and said, you know, how come, I don't know what, how come my American Express bill hasn't been paid yet? And she said, oh, I'm going to pay it. I just, I wanted to pay this other bill first. And I was thinking like, why would we be paying them in some kind of weird sequence? I was kind of like, well, just, you know, I don't know, pay them all at once. Like what, what's the problem? <laughs> like where, you know, and then I think the big moment came when I'm home at this apartment one day and there's a knock on the door. And I, I swear, I didn't even know this word at the time, but looking back, it was what we would call a repo man. And he was there to repossess my car. And what? I, yes. I had a car in a garage nearby that my father obviously hadn't been making the payments on, but this was unbeknownst to me. Um, So, you know, I think that was the beginning of like, what is going on here? Um, You know, there was just, and then it just all kind of crumbled so quickly and like, almost like the way in Princess Bride where you keep saying it's inconceivable. Then someone says, I'm not sure you know the definition of the wording, but clearly it wasn't, it was quite conceivable because it was absolutely happening.
0: I mean, we know that Saul uh, became ill and passed away. Um, where's everyone now? I mean, if I remember correctly, if I'm wrong, there was even a moment where someone had a second secret family, which, by the way, seemed to be, like, the thing to have in the late 80s. '90s. I know three people with this story. Do you really? Yes. I know one story, again, I won't use the name, where not only was there a second family, there was a third family, but the second family also lived in New York and went, and the kids were almost all the same age, but went to different schools.
1: Wow. These people really, these men, they live on the edge. Yes. Um, And then there was a third family in another state. Who is that at the time? I
0: don't. How do these, how do these people do this?
1: I could barely have one family. Exactly. um, I mean, but um, yes, it was actually my father. Um, So that was a, that happened before the loss of the money, but yes, this crazy thing where first my parents are getting divorced, which they tell us at my sister's graduation from Penn weekend. Okay. Awesome
0: you know,
1: timing. Awesome timing. We were, we, I mean, we laugh about it today. Awesome timing. It was like worst weekend I think of my sister's life. And it's like, why mother, would they do that then? I don't know. They're crazy. My mother was like in my sister's hotel room crying to her about my father. She's like, I'm just trying to graduate mom. <laughs> so, you know, so um, but I, you know, I don't quite know, but it was, it was funny. And then, um, and then very soon thereafter, my father told us in like some crazy moment that he'd actually just met someone. She seems terrific. She's got three daughters around our age. And in fact, he likes her so much that even though we have our house in East Hampton, he's going to rent a house in Southampton, and they're just going to live there for the summer. And I remember at that point. My sister and I were both kind of like, well, dad, nobody meets someone and then moves in with them. And slowly it kind of all came to light. Um, uh, that was weird. Um, yeah. I, question was, but that was like a really like, there were just so many things happening where like my perception, my sort of unshakable perception of my family, of my life, of so many different aspects of it were just completely being turned on their heads. Everything that I thought was my life and my family and just things like just facts, certain facts that were just, you know, immutable facts started to change overnight. And where is everyone now? You know, everyone is good now. I would say. And that was one of the things that was really touching to me about the podcast was kind of just hearing different people's voices and realizing, you know, uh, there's just people are in good places. Uh, in my generation, we've all, you know, many of us are successful in our own right. Um, things have just kind of worked out. There are a lot. There's a lot of different closenesses in my family. First, everyone fell apart, as often happens when money goes bad. Uh, things got very ugly. Where,
0: how so? I mean, of course, things
1: get ugly. But what? Well, they get very ugly. Like my grandmother sued my father and my uncle, who were her sons. Um, They stopped speaking. Obviously, it was all very, very public here in New York City. Um, uh, You know, just the family was fracturing. Nobody was talking to anybody. Um, But and my uncle had had this stroke that you alluded to. And that was really horrible for the family because he was really, you know, obviously the patriarch Um, and. uh, just, you know, my parents were divorced. People weren't speaking. I wasn't speaking anymore to my grandmother who had sued my father. You know, everything was just kind of crazy. But you know how life is like it all sounds horrible. But like, yeah, we kinda yeah, I don't know. We kind of like we survived it. Many of us are close again. My grandmother is no longer alive, so I'm not close to her. But, you know, I'm I I have a very good relationship with the rest of my family and um, people, I think, are generally happy
0: and good. Which is great. Ariel, how, as an, a friend but still not a family member, do you, how often do you get surprised when Liz shares something and you're like, oh my God, I had no idea or I didn't know that? What's the craziest thing you've learned?
2: Every time we sat down to record the podcast, she would tell me something that blew my mind. You know, I mean, it blew my mind when she actually threw in that her father had had this, you know, second family and this whole thing for 10 years, that was, I, that was a jaw dropper. Um, it was, you know, it, it blew my mind how much, I think this is actually what we sort of started talking about was how many things fell apart for Liz at once. It was like perestroika is what she calls it. Yes. Like cancer, her family's losing their money. The family stopped speaking to each other. She finds out her dad has this whole other life. I mean, it was a lot at once of just collapse. That was shocking to me, how much went wrong at once. Um, and it, I, it, it surprises and impresses me how honest every member of the family is. That's what I think people like about the podcast, is that every person I spoke to, every Seinberg has like a genetic gift for storytelling and for frankness.
0: Which which is amazing, yes. which is amazing that there's no one out there trying to to candy coat what went on. you are up front. Yeah. Did I, I? I'm sorry, I can't remember this. Is Gayford's?
1: Did Gayford pass, or is she still no, she's alive? Well, and she's in the podcast, and she's great. She's my mother's closest friend. Even which, though- by the way, is
0: phenomenal. I mean, for people don't know, Gayford was Saul's wife number three a huge society doyenne anointed by Anna Wintour and Tina Brown and all the international best dress list and a tremendous society hostess that I remember everybody running off the ship, you know, like rats. The second things
1: went South. How uh, she did had she- friends that stayed loyal to her. She really yeah. did. And what's amazing is my she stayed very, very loyal to my mother after my parents' divorce, because that wasn't easy. No. My father and my uncle were very, very close, and you know the loyalty would have been to my father but Gayfred really refused to give up the friendship with my mother and they are best friends and Gayfred. And again, you'll hear this in the podcast. Yes. Everything you said is exactly the way the world saw her. And one of the things that I'm most pleased about in this podcast is forget how I feel about her. I, 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 I have enormous amount of respect for her, but that would be a little bit meaningless when you hear her speak. And when you hear her tell her story, I think it's impossible not to think like, wow, I didn't know. Really, anything about this woman at all? Do Do you agree with that, Ari? Like she- one
2: thousand percent. I mean, she's a small town girl from Canada.
0: You mm-hmm. know,
2: um, like she's she's from humble beginnings, and she had her own. She had a steel pipe fitting business.
0: She lived in Southern Africa. Like she's a fascinating person. And yeah, this wasn't smart. just some woman that it the Steinbergs fun. lifted from nowhere. No. 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 My mother always really liked her and was always amazed at how smart she was. That's
1: exactly smart. right. People who didn't know her, or your mom obviously did are discovering that through this podcast. She so smart. So smart. So funny. So mm-hmm. kind. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, people are very, and again, I'm not like, I hate, I mean, it's all, no one's perfect. She's not, she's not a saint. None of us are. No, but, she's, but she's the public human being. No,
0: she took a heaping load of abuse in The Society Press and Page Six and tabloids and and all of that. Yes. So I want to skip ahead because I also find this fascinating. Why did you – I cannot imagine what it has taken to remodel Grey Gardens. And for people who don't know, there's an amazing documentary about a a home called Grey Gardens – And tell we'll tell one of you, tell the story of Grey Gardens and you've got to see the documentary. And then I want to get into what possessed you to take on this project.
1: Um, Well, Grey Gardens, as well documented, was the home that Jackie Kennedy's uh, first cousin and aunt lived in together Um, they, uh, they, uh, they bought it when, when, uh, they were a wealthy family because Jackie was from a wealthy family and it was their summer cottage and they belonged to Maidstone, a very exclusive club on Long Island, which we Jews could never belong to. No, no. They were living a very grand life and it was a very beautiful house. Uh, The house, uh, the the, the family falls apart kind of like mine and the mother and daughter end up living there and they end up obviously kind of going crazy. And they live there in a house that really to say that it should be condemned would be the understatement of the year. Uh, It is disgusting. There are rats and and rodents everywhere and cats and raccoons. They eat cat food. They live in one room because everything is destroyed. It is filthy. um, And, um, uh, that's kind of the the, the documentary um, portrays that, and they are very very frank and very open with these documentary filmmakers, the Maisel brothers. Who yes, copy. and it's also been a musical. It was on Broadway. An HBO, <laughs> and it was remade as an HBO movie with Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lange portraying yes. mother and daughter. And I think the world was fascinated also because they were literally first cousins and aunt. Of the most glamorous people in right. the world, uh, you know, the, the Bouviers, Jackie Lee, her, her glamorous sister, Jackie's glamorous sister, um, to the point where Little Edie, it's Big Edie and Little Edie are the mother and daughter. Little Edie had also dated uh, uh, President Kennedy and was possibly going to marry him. She was very, very beautiful. And then you see her living in squalor is is not the right word. Squalor. No,
0: it was you have to you have to see it
1: to believe it. Right. Would you say so, Ari, is that the... That's I think the- that,
0: yeah, and I think what the what was
2: cool about recording the podcast at Grey Gardens, which Liz has turned it, I mean, it is, couldn't be more glamorous and fun and you know, blue leopard print wallpaper. Well, like, say,
0: what psycho says, oh, I can, I can remake, I can, a small project. I'm going to redo Great garden. Well, I
1: love home projects. <laughs> it's like you're not <laughs> so, normal. Yes you, yes, you have to. I'm not normal. And also my, I, it was bought, it was bought by Sally Quinn and Ben Bradley. Ben Bradley famously was the editor of the Washington Post and his somewhat social and also uh, author wife, Sally yes. Quinn. Uh, they, we rented it from them one summer, like five, like maybe five or six years ago, we rented it from them. I loved the house again, because I had grown up, as I mentioned, going to this house on Lily pond lane in East Hampton, this Greg Garden's was around the corner. It looked like all the houses that I remember when I was growing up in East Hampton, they don't look like that anymore, but it was no rambling shingled cottages owned by wasp family. So while our house was this Charles Guathme designed, modern, you know, glass state-of-the-art systems, like, you know, the, the doors practically right. sealed behind you and the air conditioning blasted on and our pool was broiling hot and all of that. You know, the wasps were the opposite. Their pool was hot. Their, you know, their pool was cold. Their houses were hot. They're hot, there, yeah. there smoke everywhere. Screen doors. Who needs air conditioning? Blah, blah, blah. So this house reminded me of that, and I've always loved, I actually have always loved those East Hampton houses. I mean, yes, I'm a, you know, a Jap at heart, so we needed to renovate it so that it, you know, did have air conditioning. Blah, blah, blah. Course. So, um, but I, I Actually, think the house itself, irrespective of the documentary, it's you know, it's a house that is two minutes from you know, really basically on the edge of Georgia Beach. It's on a beautiful road. It is a gorgeous house with gorgeous gardens. And Sally and Ben had had done a, a, a renovation. I mean, it had been thirty years since they'd done the renovation, so we needed to do another one. But I wasn't exactly buying the house while it was in shambles.
2: Right. So, I mean, Liz we didn't did have really to remove the, the raccoons. raccoons.
1: I didn't yes. do that. No, right, no. You, um, didn't, you didn't have to remove, that's a bonus. Yeah, that's a bonus. That was good. So, so I was buying a house that needed a lot of work in my mind, but I wasn't buying a house where the floors were falling in. And it wasn't like that at all. It was a perfectly, you know, livable no. house. That in my mind, needed a really good renovation.
0: Well, they, thank goodness you hadn't really gone down the real crazy rabbit hole of, I like my mother, when she bought her apartment in New York, there was a bird flying around on the inside. It was two-story ceilings. It was the old ballroom, and there was a hole somewhere. And when she went to look at it, there was a bird inside. And she said, hmm, I can do this. So, you know, you creative types yeah, are all so a little, You get
1: it. I'm like that. I was kind okay. of like, yeah, this is fun.
0: Um, I want to jump in, and, and... I mean, Ariel, I'm such a... I'm, I'm a fan of your writing. Thanks. Um, nice. I noticed that you are both you know you're both strong women Ariel you've written a lot about feminism and being strong and being yourself and Liz you've been sort of a you were very much a maverick especially in the fashion industry yet and Ariel, I don't know if this applies to you too Liz you your family has been touched by mental illness yes Uh and I am a uh Advocate. I'm on the board of Didi Dee Dee Hirsch Mental Health Services and Suicide Prevention because my family has experienced suicide. And Ariel, how much were you, because you guys have known to aware, and it was, if I believe it's your husband, your it was your oh, husband.
1: Right now it was my ex slash late husband. Yes.
0: Right. How much were you aware of what was going on behind the scenes? Not that there could be any more in Liz's life when she was grappling with a loved one having mental illness when it was still something you couldn't talk openly about.
2: By the time Liz and I were close, uh, Liz and Jeff were divorced. So I only ever met him once. He seemed, you know, like everyone else thought he was just handsome and great. I mean, I had no idea he was suffering, um, and yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know him, but I uh, have been very well aware of the the pain that has. Come out of
0: his death, right? So, Liz, what about you? I mean, you you were grappling with this as was I, as was my dad's suicide, which was eighty seven. Before you could talk about any of these things, yeah.
1: Yours was earlier, so yeah. uh, You know, Jeff um, Jeff uh, died uh, you know by suicide in um, I want to say now it's been four years. So not you mm-hmm. know so so but it, there's something about suicide where it's still not. So, I mean, yes, we read more about it, but it still feels. Don't you think like like a hard thing? It's it just it's hard. So I want to talk about Liz. You have a new fashion
0: line. And I was I love Ariel's like, yes, yes, yes. That I've already been on the website. Oh, yay! It's uh-huh. amazing. How did this come to be? And what is behind you on that sign?
1: Oh, you know, I'm sitting in my apartment in New York and I, it says chrysanthemum. It's just Ah. a piece of art, but like, I just, I don't know why Saturday I thought the light would be good.
0: No, it's Um, good. It's good. I didn't just want to make sure we weren't missing if you were promoting something. No, I'm not
1: promoting it. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) I I love chrysanthemum. I'm not promoting that. No, but uh, my new line is fig, which is sort of the French spelling, F-I-G-U-E. And really what it is, is I've been missing being ever since I sold Liz Lang maternity to private equity in 2007, I've done other things, but I really missed having my own brand, but I didn't want to start one from scratch. I understood what that take, takes and I'm glad I did it when I was young, but I couldn't do it again, knowing everything I know now. So I'd been a fan of fig I, fig is a brand that I had been wearing since its inception 10 years ago. It was started by this woman who was the head designer for Tori Birch. And she went off on her own and it's these fabulous caftans and great dresses. And we're actually expanding. into a lot more than that separates and knits too, but, um, I loved it, and when I heard that it was going that Stephanie the founder was kind of done during covid just couldn 't take it anymore, and that she was going to close down the brand brand, it felt like almost like meant to be like Besher. like i ha oh wait, you know, I love the brand, it has an existing team in place, which was something I was looking for um, it um, uh, you know that i that I this is the perfect opportunity, so I ended up acquiring the brand and it 's kind of the way I felt. When I started doing Liz Lang maternity, that's where I was in my life. I I was getting pregnant. My friends were pregnant. That's why our children are the same age because right. we're kind of the same age. Yeah. But now I feel like, you know, I'm in my fifties. I've kind of, I mean, joking around, I've kind of entered my calf 10 years. Like, I don't, <laughs> you know, like I don't, I no longer kind of, you know, Run around on like six inch heels and little mini tight dresses, and I had those days, and they were great, but like that you know so now you know i now I, your well, feet hurt' my feet hurt, I want to look glamorous, but I kind of want to be comfy too i don't i you know the skin tights up for my twenty year old daughter and my twenty two year old son's girlfriends, but not for me um and so it really it's, it's it's big as a brand that I wear and that my friends wear, so it just it feels very natural to me like I understand the brand because uh, you know, and the customer, because I am the customer. You so. told
2: me once before you bought it, I remember you said to me, Fig is the gold standard of caftans. <laughs> and <laughs> I was not surprised when you bought it. And I think an interesting thing is it's like the opposite. It's like the opposite of her last friend, right? Like Liz's yeah. eternity was, if you're pregnant, you can wear tight, stretchy things. You don't have to be yep. a billowy thing. Fig now is like, You can be as skinny as a rail, but wouldn't it be comfy to be in a flowing, glamorous caftan just like with your body
0: free? See, and this is why I love interviewing people who work together but who are friends because (laughs) the insights from both of you on the other are always the best. But it's true. You were the one who said you don't have to be in a caftan while you're pregnant here. Put on a cute pair of pants and they might be bigger in the middle, but
1: the legs are still skinny. That was my mantra. And I, it's not that I think that women have to hide the caftan. I think these caftans and these dresses are very sexy and some of them are short oh. they're long. It's not that they're not sexy. It's just, they're not, there's so many different ways to be sexy. But uh, it's
0: also got that whole sort of vacation-y, set vibe that someone could say, where'd you get that? And you would say, Mm, a visa like it's got like That's that sort right. of inherent snob appeal not like hi i bought it online <laughs> oh, totally.
1: it looks like you just got back from Saint farts and you discovered this little shop in the like little boutique hotel um yeah no it's very very sort of jet set meets jet set um you know glamorous uh i don't know yes
2: glamour without oh. constriction
1: yes I find them extraordinarily glamorous. Like, I always feel very, very chic. I wear them from everywhere, from like beach cover up, honestly, to like a black tie wedding or bar mitzvah. Like, that's sort of the way I treat them. So, I was very excited actually to have the opportunity to buy my favorite brand. It felt a little bit like pinch me. This is too good to be true.
0: I love that. I've already got stuff in my cart. Um, hmm. Ariel, what have you learned about Liz through this process that you didn't know before? Or what insight have you gleaned?
2: I mean, I think it made us closer. I mean, I think we realized certain things that we had in common that we hadn't really thought about or talked about. I think, you know, we both grew up in houses where there was a certain amount of lying and secrets, and we sort of figured out that it primed us. For what came next. And we, we hadn't, I don't think we'd put our fingers on it quite like that before we did this, right, Liz?
1: Absolutely. I always inherently felt that even though if one looked at us from the exterior, they might think we didn't have a lot in common, but we understood that yeah. we did have things in common, but I'm not sure we could have put our fingers on it before. How do
0: you, how are you raising your children differently in the sense of not a lot of lies, not a lot of secrecy? And to understand the impact that your family had and has on different parts of business. You know, it's 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 an illustrious history.
1: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, on the one hand, of course, I talk, I've been talking to my kids most of their life about sort of my family and, you know, they they make fun of me They're You know, they're they're only semi interested. I mean, you know how kids are um, not interested but, at all. Not at all. It's like, not oh, my all right, mom, you lived a fancy life. You know, whatever.
0: Yeah. I but. Um, oh, my son's favorite new thing is I'm like, I'm redoing a closet and he's just rolls eyes and goes, you don't need that. I'm like, honey, you don't know what I need. We like, oh,
1: <laughs> can tell that I've quote unquote given up on myself. I mean, they're yeah. mean, but, but <laughs> I'm like, you don't need uh, that.
0: I'm like, you don't get to decide what I you don't need so many shoes. And I'm like, go away.
1: <laughs> so much, none of your business exactly uh, you know and i i don't i, I feel like there was i mean i definitely my children were raised very differently than i was raised I, I don't know that i would say like definitely there were secrets definitely there were lies but my children will probably say one day they'll be telling some therapist that there were secrets and there were lies i mean for sure uh but you know i try to be open with them i think i'm a lot less strict and i'm not even sure that's positive like, it's sometimes, I mean, my husband and I, my current husband, and I have a joke. My mother's name is Kathy. And we often, when we're doing stuff, you know, trying to figure out what to do about one of our kids, one of my children. We'll say, what would Kathy do? Like, she was kind of good. Like, she was just, she didn't tolerate- That's funny.
0: I think, what would Joan do? And then do the opposite.
1: Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, I do the opposite because I'm not my mother. I mean, I do it, but I really respect it. Like, I mean, you know, the things my children say to me, let me just say I would not have said to my mother, I mean, Oh, um, can you imagine? No, no, never, <laughs>
0: never, 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 never. My son and I just had this discussion over, and I'm pretty strict, right. but I was asking him to help me do something, and he's like, you can do it, and I'm like, excuse me? And I finally, it was like plugging, trying to get something into a plug, and I couldn't reach, and blah, and it turned into like a whole thing. I'm like, you don't understand in my house, if I had said that, I would not have teeth left. I
1: wouldn't be alive to tell you the story. Right. Exactly. You you wouldn't exist. I guess there was an
0: expectation of these things. And by the way, he understood that that was his one and only time to try and say that to me. And he was 20. I'm like, Ooh, 21, even though it's going to be in December is looking real far away for you right
1: now. No, that's great. So, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I'm a, it's a very different time. I'm a very different parent. Uh, Uh, But as I said, like on the one hand, I lived with so much, like we had so much, but my parents were strict. So I actually tell my children, I mean it. I think they have more access to money and capital and things like my mother famously, like when I, when I went to school in the morning, she would stick her head out the window from the ninth floor of our fifth avenue apartment building. And if she saw me hailing a taxi or saw me with the doorman, she would scream downstairs, no taxis. Like, you know I <laughs> mean? <you know>, like, <laughs> so like, I know, again, not a hardship, but you know, I took the public bus to school. I don't think my children know what a public bus is. I don't right. think they have a bus pass. I mean, you know, like, so, so it's just so different.
0: Well, you guys are amazing. Everyone needs to listen to the Just Enough family. It's such a fascinating slice of of culture that you guys have tapped into, and I am recommending it to everybody.
1: Thanks, Thanks so much. Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. So good to see you.